0: This Week in Startups is brought to you by Dell for Entrepreneurs. Level up your hardware today and save up to 43% by going to dell.com slash twist. Klaviyo helps brands build relationships across any distance, delivering email marketing moments your customers will appreciate, remember, and share. Visit Clavio.com slash twist to start your free trial. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot slash twist. And Silicon Valley Bank, who, in partnership with Founders Pledge, has formed the COVID-19 Global Impact and Innovation Fund. This fund will deliver resources directly to organizations that can help make the most immediate impact in the fight against COVID-19. Learn more at svb.com slash impact. Hey, welcome to This Week in Startups. It's your boy, Jason Calacanis, here in the middle of the pandemic. It's Friday, May 1st, 2020. We have found out that our pandemic stay-at-home order here in the Bay Area will be extended through the month of May, and we may get back to some normalcy in June. This has been, I think I started my quarantine on the 12th of March. So all of April, all, almost all of March and now almost all of June. So this is going to wind up being a 10 week plus quarantine for me and I, I'll be honest, uh not easy for me because I like people and I like being out there and I hate um not going out and doing things. And so it's been particularly challenging for me, but it's been really nice to connect with all of you and do this podcast. And it's made me appreciate the podcast and the community even more. I mean, I always just love the fact that some of you stop me on the street or see me at a conference or drop me an email or write a review on iTunes and and tell me that the show or some guest inspired you or you learned something from it or just kept you entertained on some hike or something. Boy, you know, that is something as a uh, performer or a host of a show that really fills fills your bucket and charges your batteries. But I wasn't prepared for the amount of warmth, love, and camaraderie I felt when we started our Slack channel. And I just want to thank everybody for showing up in the Slack and talking to me. And a lot of you are like, wow, it's amazing that you responded. Uh, It's amazing you showed up, and I appreciate it. I appreciate all of you for listening to the podcast and showing up for me. This is a two-way street. This is how I get my energy. This is how I get my motivation in life is doing the show. And so, I think when these crises happen, you, you do a little self-reflection. You look at your work, you look at your life, you look at your friendships, and boy, am I a blessed individual. But I may have taken for granted the audience of this week in Startups because I don't see you all the time, right? You just download from some RSS feed, some MP3 file, you listen to it, and it, you know you, you're, you're sometimes mistaken as a podcaster because you see a bunch of links, you see a bunch of metrics and stats, a couple of thousand views here, tens of thousands of you here couple of hundred thousand views overall. But you forget each of those views is a human. And if you want to join those humans, you go to thisweekinstartups.com slash slack and you join and a community has formed. Over 20,000 founders in there and we did an AMA or two and we have book club and we just finished our first book. And I have to tell you, the Slack channel, as good as this podcast has been over a thousand episode episodes after two weeks the slack channel i think is as valuable and in some cases people might be getting more value from that than the actual podcast people have told me they've made business contacts they've made friends they've had intelligent conversations they've gotten great advice and it's not me it's you it's all of you as a community and so i'm just absolutely enthralled uh and i can't wait when i click on the icon in my slack to, to see what y'all are talking about in there, whether it's the book channel, or the small wins channel, or I'm going to kick ass today channel. Um, sometimes I pop into the Australian or Chicago channels and just say hi to friends, uh, London, big presence in London, uh, the growth hacking channel, all of this stuff is just great. And I was very concerned that this podcast would have, uh, would struggle because I thought, God, in order to have a good podcast, I got to look into the eyes of the guest, but we haven't missed a beat team here has done a great job of moving this to virtual. And today's guest um, has a company uh, and a lot of experience in the virtual. He worked at Google. He worked uh, with my friend Evan Williams and my other friend Biz Stone over at Medium, which is called Obvious Corporation. Now he's got his own company called Range.co. No M there. It's a Range.co, the great CO domain like I use for launch.co. And uh, he's the CEO and co-founder. His name is Daniel Pugh. Pius, Pupius. Daniel, welcome to the program. How and how did I do, I'm butchering your name?
1: You did a very good job. Okay. It's, uh, people really struggle with the, uh, the pronunciation there. So thank you.
0: Well, it's, it's spelled P-U-P-I-U-S, Pupius. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I asked you earlier, like, is it Greek? It feels Greek to me.
1: Um, it's well it's of a Lithuanian descent um but I, my ancestors came over to the u k in around nineteen o five so it 's quite likely it was corrupted during the immigration process ah. um we did and we did try and track down relatives in Lithuania um in the nineties and um couldn't didn't have any luck but interestingly, since Facebook, a few people have popped up with the with the surname
0: amazing same thing happened to my family, Kalakanis uh is Kali with K's, it means to have done well or well done. And when they went through Ellis Island, my grandfather, uh, like many folks going through Ellis Island, they just wrote down whatever you said as best they could and told you to keep moving because there was a line. Uh, Tell me, what is range.co? Welcome to the program.
1: Hi, yeah. um, So range, um, we're calling it team success software. Uh, Essentially, it's what I wished I had when I was running teams at Medium and Google. Um, It's uh, an asynchronous communication platform. Um, that keeps teams connected wherever they are. So at the core is a daily check-in. It's a bit like a virtual stand-up, um, except we integrate with all your tools. So it's really easy to remember what you're doing and what you've um, what you've done. And then we have some culture building components built in. Um, so we have companies like Twitter, Carter, Medium, and they use it to stay in sync, focus on what matters, and also build trust across the team.
0: Let's talk about the asynchronous nature of that. You were very specific to to qualify it as asynchronous. Explain to people who maybe know what that word means, but don't know in this context, what that means and why is that so important?
1: Yeah, so a lot of work practices historically relied on this face-to-face synchronous communication. So synchronous means back and forth, you're doing it at the same time. And those practices have then moved online. So synchronous chat, Slack is very synchronous. You can catch up after the fact. But most of the time people use it as a conversation. Zoom, of course, is um, synchronous. You know, you and I are chatting back and forth now at the same time. So asynchronous just means that you are not present at the interface at the same moment. So an email is asynchronous. I send an email and you receive it an hour later, 12 hours later, it doesn't matter. Um, with range, you do these check-ins or you do objective updates and um, then your team can uh, catch up on the work um, whenever suits them. So as it fits their schedule. I was gonna say, it's really important for remote teams because. It's really hard to be in the same place at the same time. Um, you know, you're 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 often time displaced as well as geographically displaced. So if you're in different time zones, or you're on different working schedules, um, you want to stay in sync. Um, async.
0: Yeah, and you don't want to interrupt each other. That is a constant complaint about right. Slack. And Slack has spent a lot of time building sophisticated tools for notifications that nobody understands, nobody mm-hmm. reads and create massive chaos i find um where people are just like oh you know stop using channels Stop using at here stop letting everybody know and then people are like well why don't you set your settings and learn how to do that and so there's a little bit of an onboarding thing did you make range.co for um remote work in mind or uh you know agnostic to work
1: so so we started a few years ago and remote work is definitely beyond the on the climb, but we we're agnostic in terms of where you're located. One of the core ideas is around um, work is getting more complex, and the complexity is based on different factors. so it might be a cross functional team instead of a purely functional team. it might be remote or multiple time zones, or it might be the nature of the work is more complex. so as the work gets more complex, it becomes more difficult to stay stay say connected and stay um, and to coordinate your activities. So, Rangers built that uh, with that in mind. And when that said, so I was going to say, that said, even before COVID, um, around two thirds of our customers spanned multiple time zones. So, it definitely resonated with remote teams um, a lot.
0: And this uh, functional versus cross functional, if I'm correct Mm -hmm. in defining that, you're part of the design team, I'm part of the development team, there's a sales team. They tend Mm -hmm. to function really well when you're in your tribe, when you're in your group. Because you have a common language, you have a common ethos typically, maybe even personalities. The sales team's a certain way, the development team's a certain way. Um, you have your own stand-ups where you explicitly say what you're working on. But cross-functional, when the sales team and the product team and the design team and the marketing team all have to get on the call at the same time, that's when things mm-hmm. start to break down, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and and I think the... Potentially, the challenge or the irony is that um, the cross-functional collaboration is where the magic happens. and That's when you can move much more quickly and be much more adaptive to the environment that you're working in. So startups are inherently cross-functional. And then even if you look at most product development teams, they they no longer operate in these functional silos. You don't have a waterfall model where product hands off to design, design hands off to engineer, and there's not any collaboration. You have a work unit who are focusing on um, a deliverable or some output, and they work together as a team. So the notion of a team is very important here.
0: And you had mentioned something about the the core function of this product uh, range being the sort of, I, I don't know, if task management or your to-do mm-hmm. list for the day, your intentionality. What do you call it when people explicitly state, here's what I'm going to get done today? And is that the key feature of the software? Is that what the, everything revolves around? Is that the key piece of data?
1: Yeah, we, we call that the anchor habit. Um, it's this core core behavior, this core loop, um, and it has a bunch of really nice properties. So for an individual, um, you can collect all the things that are on your plate from across the different tools. So you say, you say these are my calendar events, these are my Asana tasks, these are the GitHub issues that are assigned to me, and you bring those together and, and plan your day out. And then you can reflect on what you did yesterday and um, kind of celebrate it, like all the docs you edited, all the meetings you had, the interviews, the code you submitted, and that makes you feel accomplished. And then the pr- process of sharing that with the team then creates transparency and access to information. So instead of me saying, um, I worked on this um, one login thing for Airbnb, you can dig straight into the, the Git commit or the, the design doc that I was working on without having to ask me where to find it. So it has some really nice properties. Um, ah, so that's that interesting. It's
0: like you're anticipating that when I state what I did today, people are going to have a question. And by linking to it, and anticipating your boss's question or your co collaborator or your adjacent leader in another group, uh, in the cross functionality, cross function group, you're anticipating they might want to dr- drill down into that new mm-hmm. feature, maybe look at the spec, maybe look at the result, maybe look at the designs, and you could link to the Envision, the GitHub, the to do list, the Notion page, whatever it is.
1: Yeah, I think one of the challenges with knowledge management in general is like, I don't know what's interesting to you. Um, And then there's multiple stakeholders, especially in these really, really complex teams as product managers, as designers, as engineering managers, as executives, there's the, you know, the, the IT team. So I don't know what part of my work is interesting to whom. So if I can push that out in a relatively, um, like, like high fidelity way, people can then pick and choose and have access to information that's important to them. So it's much more of a kind of like um, published subscribe model than a um, than a sort of a dist- you know, direct distribution model of this information is important to you.
0: All right. When we get back from this quick break, I know you worked at Google on Gmail uh, and you worked on the Google Plus, the failed, gigantic, huge white whale of a project, and you got looped into that. I want to hear all about that and how it informed what you're doing with Range when we get back on This Week in Startups. Have you been itching to upgrade your workstation? Well, Dell for Entrepreneurs wants to help you level up your tech hardware. It was created to support founders by providing resources and tools that help startups grow and scale their technology. Scaling your company means more than just hiring. It means getting high-quality laptops, network, storage, and printers to provide your employees with the best tools to succeed. I use this, and I have used it for years, the Dell 38-inch Curved ultra sharp monitor why do i use this why do i give one to every team member for the office and for home because with a little USB-C plug into your laptop boom your desktop expands you can have three giant windows open slack over here notion over here uh, and it makes people feel great when they have that giant monitor and they don't have to task switch that's just one of the many options you can get with dell for entrepreneurs Founders that register for Dell for Entrepreneurs have a wide range of free resources for startups such as free IT consulting from experts who are ready to help you with any IT-related questions. You get access to capital for buying hardware with Dell Financial Services founders can qualify for financing their entire IT project and pay it back in low monthly payments so you don't burn that precious cash and rewards like earning up to 6% cash back on Dell products. Every founder should take advantage of this program now, level up your hardware today and save up to 43% by going to Dell.com slash twist and registering for Dell for Entrepreneurs. That's Dell.com slash twist today to save up to 43% and get this amazing Dell monitor. I actually have a 49 one-inch one at home. That one is bonkers. I have two computers plugged into it simultaneously so we can have two different sessions going for two different projects I'm working on. It's a crazy way to do it. Um, You don't have to go that far. I think you just go with the 38, but if you want to go crazy like me, get the 49-inch. That's the future. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, welcome back to This Week in Startups. It's May 1st, 2020. If you're listening to this 100 years in the future, Uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. It's called coronavirus, COVID-19, and we're in, uh, God, I don't know, six, seven weeks into a, a stay-at-home order here. And my guest today, virtually over the Zoom, is Daniel Pupias. Uh, he is on the Twitter, DPUP, if you want to follow him, a uh, four-letter club. And uh, the company is Range, not which he's been working on for the last couple of years. They've raised a little bit of money from... Uh, some known suspects like uh, First Round and General Catalyst uh, and Bloomberg Beta, bunch of our friends in there, um, and Il- and Ellen Powell as well. Interesting, been um, trying to get her onto the podcast for a while, but she's she's kind of podcast shy. Um, so you worked at Google,
1: mm-hmm, that's right,
0: and uh, you worked on Gmail Chat. I know that, and you worked on you got looped into Google Plus.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: For people who don't know. Google got obsessed with the ascension of Facebook at a certain point. They decided to pour a couple billion dollars into having a coexistor, maybe not a killer, but at least a coexistor having a stake in social media. So they created plus.google.com. Um eventually it got uh turned off. It did get some decent traction and had some amazing world-class design and functionality. Tell me uh first. Um, how you got looped into that, tell us that story, and then ultimately yeah. why you think it failed. I have my own, oh, wow. I have two theories <laughs> myself, which I'll get into, but uh, you tell me yours.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting um, story and I'm very curious what the, the internet historians will make of make of it when they bring everything together. Um, but I was on the, the Gmail team. I had a, an infrastructure group who were building um, the foundation for the next gen Gmail infrastructure. And Google Buzz. I'm not sure if you remember Buzz, but Buzz sure. just um, shut down, and then Google was trying to figure out what the social um, the social thing looks like.
0: Take a moment to explain Buzz, because that to me was an unbelievably cool experiment.
1: Yeah, it was. It was born out of um, the status the status update in Gmail chat, where it basically became this lark, and then people could have conversations around it. So it was this. Fr- it was right inside Gmail, and it became like a really cool thing that we used inside google um and then there were just a few hiccups around the rollout and around access to information that um caused it to be shut down but it was a very interesting idea and i really liked that it was part of um, the, the main gmail ui and so integrated with uh with the chat product
0: if i remember correctly you would be in gmail everybody knows on the bottom left you have this uh chat functionality that you worked mm-hmm. on but then buzz kind of went in between it and you could have this like threaded discussion and it automatically popped up a social network based mm-hmm. upon your inbox or based upon your yep. your address book.
1: Yeah, basically, yeah.
0: So, so instead of uploading your address book to Facebook, uploading it to LinkedIn and having it build the network there, it was like, well, why not just turn on the network that's right here? The problem was is somebody had a stalker in their email box or somebody had a an ex who was abusive. That, I think that was the case that, uh, somebody wrote a blog post about that got a lot of press. Popping up an instant social network, you may not want to be in a social network with your abusive ex, right? That was the thing that killed it and made everybody freak out was that the permission wasn't explicitly granted mm-hmm. to build a pop-up social network, correct?
1: Yeah, exactly. That was the, the main problem.
0: Now, Zuckerberg would not have had a problem with that. He would have just done it. I think that's the people at Google actually cared and were very considered about having done this. Uh, and moving fast and maybe breaking some things in the process, right?
1: I think it's expectations and trust. So Gmail was, at that point was a very established product. It had a lot of users. People relied on it and had these expectations about how it functioned. So it's natural for a product team to want to think about how can you deliver more value to your existing customer base. Um yeah but then the, the it broke user trust because the the users had this like ex- expectation about the contract that you know gmail is private it's private email that they're in control um, and and that was the that was the ultimate the the issue
0: why didn't it uh why didn't you then flip it to or didn't the team flip it to here's google buzz you click on it and it says mm-hmm. google buzz will take your address book and build a social network out of it um so you can see what your friends are up to currently 13 of your 100 most trusted friends are using it click here yep. to join the fun and when you click to join the fun it says these are the 100 people you're going to be connected with please remove anybody you don't mm-hmm. want w- did did the team fight for that actually and not and get shut down
1: um, on, honestly that was above my pay grade um i, w- I was oh, you were just building it <laughs> I was working on infrastructure to support the product ah. teams, so so I was thinking about the the strategy of how how all the pieces fit together um, and delivering them um, the 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 building blocks for for the applications.
0: Well, what do you think of my idea as an approach to the product launch? Obviously, you're a very sophisticated product person. D- would that not have worked? Should they have kept doing that?
1: Yeah, I think it's I think it, it's difficult to figure out how to backpedal and whether the, the trust was. Um, completely uh, broken at that point, okay. and then you have to backpedal even further than um, than necessarily you wished. Um, so, some of the theory, I think, was then to go off and create a separate product, which mm-hmm. had some of the properties of Google Buzz, but then also integrated features that were previously in Google and and iGoogle.
0: See, this is the the actual core of Sil- I believe Silicon Valley's moral compass. Issues. Mm -hmm. If you're a good actor and you shut the thing down because you made an honest mistake and you broke trust, and then you're up against a competitor who does not care about trust, cares only about growth, it is almost impossible to win. And that competitor is obviously Zuckerberg, who allowed people to auto join groups. And you probably remember this. He created a product where I could add you to a group. And the day that this thing came out, they added Mike Arrington, the former editor of TechCrunch. Zuckerberg and myself to Nambla, the National Man Boy Love Association, like a pedophile group. They created a fake pedophile group and added us to it. And you know what Zuckerberg's response to that was? <laughs> Only your friends can do that. And and everybody was like, well, yeah, but why don't you just make it opt in? And he's like, well, you should just have better friends who don't do stuff yeah. like that. And it's like, that's the competitor Google was up against, right? I wanna I want, I want hear your thoughts on that as like a, the, the Zuckerberg competitor and, and competing against that level of product velocity that level of move fast break things
1: yeah i mean i think i think it goes back to just the you know the core the core values of the company and and the and the history and google had been built out of a very different it was a very technical culture they didn't really understand social in the way that um mark does um and Yeah, I think it was a very difficult situation for them to navigate. And there was a lot of internal discussions and there's huge teams dedicated to this, lots of stakeholders, very complex efforts that were very challenging.
0: Yeah. So explain to how Google Plus then came to be.
1: Because Google Buzz, I guess
0: you had some, that mm -hmm. gave everybody like a little bit of hope, like, hey, we can build a cool product.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I think there was was this interesting moment where um, there was, there was, Visibility into the possibility of what what Google could do, and there was excitement about um, the type of product we could build there' some really great product thinkers and designers and engineers so it was this amalgamation of teams that came together, people out of um, iGoogle, which was starting to have some social elements and then the the, the buzz team um, and then um, you know Vic came along and um, took took over leadership of the effort and we had this hundred day hundred day sprint to 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 ship something and it was just like a, a huge effort. At one point, we had 280 people contributing code to the same JavaScript binary, which at that time was really unheard of. Um, so it was, it was, it was, it was pretty, a pretty wild effort.
0: Yeah, thousands of developer, thousands of people eventually were on the Google Plus team.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, tangentially, yeah.
0: Now, the product was growing like crazy because Google decided to put it in the toolbar on the top right. And plus, so people, if they don't remember, plus was if you liked something in the blogosphere or other places, you would put plus one. Mm-hmm. So it was just a, that the original star or thumbs up or like was plus one. So if you were in favor of something, you'd say plus one, like add one to that, right? It was a very clever, very Google on brand mm-hmm. for Google. What was it that made, in your opinion, Google Plus not work? despite the fact that it got a lot of users.
1: <laughs> I think ultimately all these things are, become organizational failures. And in the case of Google+, I think the values and the vision of the people on the ground building the product diverge from the vision and values of the people leading. Um, mm-hmm. And that that dichotomy created a bunch of tension and meant meant that we were, both, we were ineffective and um, eventually couldn't sustain. And I think there's a, a number of examples, but the most... So sort of public example is the real names policy, um, which um, there's a lot of external um, press about this. And internally, there's a huge amount of furor and a lot of Googlers really were against the real names policy. Um, and but, you know, it was an executive decision to to stick with it. And then ultimately, they to what the real names
0: policy is. Yeah, the real names, names policy was
1: that you, you, you couldn't create a, pseudon, a pseudonymous account. You had to have an account which represented your real human name. So I would only be able to show up as Daniel P. Pius. Which for me is, is fine. And I, I have a public persona that is, um, is, uh, is on all my social products. But for a lot of people, that isn't safe and causes a bunch of issues. And one of the powers in the early web was that people could have multiple personas and multiple, um, like pseudonyms. So in one community, you might be like, I had a, com- like, I was Lazarus in one community. I'd be Deep Up in another. And in another, I'd be like a different, um, persona. And that was like a really powerful construct in the early web that, um, a lot of Google has really, really liked. And then as you look at um, people from different backgrounds and different um, social situations, being able to sh- show up in a social product, not with your real name is, is like a requirement and essentially a safety requirement. Um, so that was why the, 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 the inter- internally, a lot of people didn't support the real names policy.
0: Yeah. And, and if you, you peel back the onion even more and take a deeper look at it, we're in San Francisco where there are groups of people um, who just showing up and existing in the world um could be beaten and murdered uh mm-hmm. trans people, gay people, marginalized people. Right. Like their their very existence could on one of these social networks could lead to massive harassment. And yep, the exactly. only reason to not attach your real name to it is advertising or you want to maintain the integrity of the network like you could there's other ways to deal with that that are very simple. You can allow people to have a pseudonym. And if they behave badly, just look at the behavior as opposed to Mm -hmm. looking at the name, right? Like,
1: Yeah, I think there's a theory that if people, which I don't agree with, but if people had their real name associated with the account, they would behave better. So the quality of the discourse would be higher. And I think-
0: Yeah, how's that going?
1: I think 10 years on, that has been distinctly proven false.
0: You know, that was one I think I I got partially wrong because I was thinking about normal level-headed people. So you're like, well, a level-headed person is not going to say things on LinkedIn with their real name that they might say in an IRC room with a, with a pseudonym. But then we look at Facebook and people are more than willing to say racist stuff or crazy stuff. And when you actually get all people onto a social network, the concept that a real name protects you is problematic um, although verifying people is is another interesting thing. When we get back to this quick break, I want to get more into the details of how range works and I will reveal my reasons why I think uh, Google Plus failed. Uh, and I want to get your feedback on my outsider's view as a social media addict who loved and was one of the, I had 600,000 people following me on mm-hmm. Google Plus. I had, a, I had a real following there and I loved the product. When we get back on The Speaking Star uncertain times supporting your community and growing relationships with your customers is a strategy that will be appreciated remembered and shared in good times and bad open and empathetic communication with your customers is key it's critical email is and always will be one of the best channels for delivering these communications we all know that email marketing is one of Clavio's core offerings and when you leverage personalization driven by a 360-degree view of the customer, those emails will feel even more relevant, fostering stronger relationships. Klaviyo truly understands how challenging it is for each and every entrepreneur to get their business off the ground, let alone navigate trying times like today. If you're feeling overwhelmed and growing your business is hard, especially in this climate, you're not alone. Klaviyo is here to help brands build relationships across any distance so here is your call to action create meaningful memorable email marketing moments that last a lifetime visit klaviyo that's k-l-a-v-i-y-o.com slash t-w-i-s-t to start a free trial thanks again to klaviyo for supporting independent media like this week in startups let's get back to this amazing episode all right daniel Hugh Pius is here. He is D-P-U-P. And we're having a fascinating discussion, not just about his startup range.co, which helps teams be more productive, especially when they're remote. And we're going to get into some more of the features there and some more thoughts on remote work and best practices when we get to our third act. But we're having a fascinating mm-hmm. discussion about, I guess, recent history, but not history or recent events that have are five or 10 years past, uh, like Google's foray into social networking, then which we eventually led with them giving up. I, I had a couple of ideas of why it didn't work, and I and I love the product. I think actually, at the time, um, Google Plus was a better product than anything else in the market. Just heads up yeah. on features and design and everything. And a lot of people. Yeah, I'm felt really that. proud of what
1: the team built. Yeah, yeah it, the, team, the, the team did an incredible job.
0: It was gorgeous. It was responsive. It was global. I mean, it was extraordinary. And the that the circles, uh, people forgot about circles. You could create circles, mm-hmm. which were subset of groups, which eventually Facebook copied with like close friends and the mm-hmm. ability to create friends and family and these sort of things, as Zuckerberg is prone to do, like watch whatever features people do and then just try to incrementally make them better or release them. Um, I think the fact that Google Plus did not have its own domain name and brand and destination where they had 100% of the marketing Uh, space and interface i think was a challenge and i think that plus.google.com or you know however the domain structure was was a bit of a mistake because you'd never had this ability for it to stand alone as the in the way youtube or instagram do um or beats does inside of apple and having this collection of brands xbox inside of microsoft um or even like Uh, I'm trying to think, uh, like Bing is its own search engine owned by Microsoft, right? And I felt like Google had not figured out that they could have a brand that stood next to Google that was adjacent. How much of that, if they had plus.com, do you think that could have changed the dialogue if they said, hey, listen, plus is over here, Google search and Gmail are over here, YouTube is over here. These things, you can use the same account to log into them, you can share your address books, there's some commonality, but it is its own thing if you want to use it or not.
1: Yeah, I don't know because there there's Orkut, if you remember Orkut, yes. which was really big in um Brazil and a few other countries in India. Um a twenty I mean, percent time
0: I, project that Google did.
1: It, yeah. Well it had a team. Um but I, I think I I think it might be related to the adoption pattern. So Google can fast track a huge huge adoption just by the presence and the and the the as you as you know, it's in the toolbar. But if you think about Facebook's adoption pattern, it went through the universities and it went through companies and each of those had essentially a wall-to-wall critical mass within a community. So they got nice saturation within small communities before padding out, whereas Google, I think, had some saturation within communities, but it, ge- it was generally quite sparse. And that, and if you think about network effects, mm. m- that would be my sense as uh, uh, why, why it didn't take off in necessarily the same way as Facebook.
0: Right. So there might have been a large number of people there because they blasted it to everybody, However, mm-hmm. your tribe might have only five percent of your tribe might have used it, so it felt yeah. like a ghost town. So there were a lot of a lot of people in a small number of communities.
1: Yeah, uh, which and made it I feel think, shallow. I, at times. I, I, I agree with you that I, I think circles was a really powerful feature. I think it was also a little bit confusing to people because it it's both um, it's both a consumption mode, it's a way of organizing your consumption of like who shows up in my feed, but it's also a way of distributing. Um, content, So I'm going to push stuff to my family and then I'm going to consume it in my family. And it, it kind of blurred two models. It was kind of tricky. But it was
0: so brilliant. It would be as if on Twitter, um, this would be such an amazing feature. Somebody um, clip this and send it to the, the new product manager over there. And at mention him, please. Somebody in the audience uh, and, and Jack. Imagine if a Twitter list, if a Twitter list had everybody following you could become also a DM list or a mm-hmm. share list in private. So I could have a DM list or I could have a Twitter list that was um my portfolio companies and when I tweeted to it I could ch- click, a, click a button and say only to them in DM mm-hmm. start a DM or send a tweet only to them and then that would be circled and colored you know with a mm-hmm. background and say only for members of this list a private tweet yeah, so I-, I could have a private such public feed going too complicated or brilliant
1: why, I think one difference with circles was that um, circles would be my list and then you'd have a different list, so they weren't mm. necessarily shared. Right. So it wasn't clear to different mm. people what the group was. So w- if, if the Twitter list is shared, then you have a clear audience and a clear grouping, which, it, which is then guiding the distribution and the consumption. So I think people need – in social products, people need to know who the audience is, who are you speaking to.
0: Right, yeah. It was su- It was super cool also that you could have like – you could bring two circles together. So you could share something mm-hmm. with your family and work, and then say only work, yep. only family. So you, you had this like really neat way of, I, I created like a tribe for New York, LA, and San Francisco. So when I was in each city, mm-hmm. I could say, hey, I'm here. Yep. Anybody want to get coffee? And it was like my, it, it really started to work for me. Yep. I invested all of this amount in it. And uh, the other thing I think was um, you you just didn't have, you know, Larry and Sergey, I, I remember Sergey like posted twice Yeah. and he responded to one of my things I had in my my daughter when she was like three years mm-hmm. old eating a slice of pizza and she's like, oh, she loves crust. And you know, like I was yep. like, oh wow, Sergey Brin's on here, cool, you know. Um, but then that was it. You know, like and I don't think Larry ever even opened it. <laughs> so if the, yeah. if the leaders of the company are not participating, that does create I, I think a little yeah. bit of a tell, right?
1: Yeah, it's the it's the spoken values and the lived values. So there was I think this is public knowledge, but there was a, a social bonus where um, the bonus was tied to Google social efforts. So that's spo- speaking as if the the that the social is a really core cool mission, but then the lived and felt values were obviously very different. Um, so I think this goes to just general like, organizational practice and startups is that you have to walk your talk and the spoken values have to map your lived values. And you can yell as loud as you want about what you want people to do, but unless you actually, your actions are guiding and, and your behaviors are guided by the, your true values, people won't follow you and, and they won't pay attention to the to the things you think they want.
0: That's a really interesting observation. Like, it, And uh, it, I always say this to founders when they're presenting, you know, show, don't tell. Show the product mm-hmm. working. Show a customer using it. Don't tell us about products using it, your customers using it. In a way, in management, show, don't tell is applicable here as well as just a simpler way to say what you said much more eloquently, which is show that you love the product. I, I thought when mm-hmm. Zuckerberg um and joe green um did uh like a live where they were making meats and they were smoking meats in their backyard and it you know became like a whole meme and they made these weird things about smoking meats and sauces or whatever it at least showed that zuckerberg you know as awkward as he is on camera (laughs) was willing to be on camera right it's like oh wow they're using and then cheryl sandberg um you know she she's she's active on instagram she uses the product right and mm-hmm. that is super important. I think that's a really interesting observation yeah. about management. I, one thing I wanted to talk to you about was how to um you know with with your product or without your product, just you know big picture and tactical, how does one as a leader and as a team member not? have these new tools, whether it's Slack or yours or Asana or Notion, whatever people are choosing to use to keep track of work, how do you keep them from being authoritarian micromanagement um, and big brothers watching versus celebrating, informing coworkers and creating that um, esprit de corps, as they say?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it goes to values. Like the tools can be used however you want them and um, the usage is a manifestation of your value system. So if you want to use these tools as surveillance and overbearing command and control leadership, then you can do it that way. Um, My belief and my hope is that most leaders today don't really want to live that way and they live that way out of fear. Um, Like They don't truly believe that, you know, theory X, theory Y, um, leadership theory, that theory X is you're de facto lazy and you need both a carrot and a stick to motivate you. Theory Y is you're inherently motivated to do good work and you just need the conditions to do good work. So I don't think many people believe in Theory X anymore, but they act as if they they act in those ways because they're essentially fearful. They don't know what's happening. They are are worried that they're going to miss targets. They're dependent for things that they maybe can't act on um, themselves. So they become overbearing and they become command and control. So I think my my goal with something like range and these other tools is to create systems which can create visibility and transparency such that those fears don't manifest as much so Mm -hmm. i trust that you're doing your work because i see the visibility and i trust that you're doing okay um um, like emotionally and um at your job and then then i can actually like relax my my controlling tendencies so that's sorry but i think ultimately if if you if you believe people are inherently lazy then uh then you you can use any of these tools um, in bad ways, and I think for people who have the luxury and the privilege to 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 work the way they want, they should work with leaders who um, you know believe in empowerment and believe in transparency and purpose, and align themselves with leaders who match their value systems.
0: I, I've been struggling with this because I created my own little lightweight way of doing this, which was I you know mm-hmm. I just started to get overwhelmed with the number of people reporting into me, and I don't like micromanaging people, so I said, just send me an EOD end of day report, yep. three or four bullet points by email. We moved it to Slack since because people wanted to put in Slack. And then when we yep. went full virtual, I said, just give me an SOD, start a day and an EOD. Yep. And you can reply to one, you just do the other, just your intention of what you're going to get done today. Yeah. The problem with that is, is, you know, you run this risk of somebody not having a great EOD and not having mm-hmm. an SOD right. that's inspiring. And what I told everybody is if you feel you your EOD is not where you want it to be. You're not proud of it. You're not enthused about it. Talk to these three people in the organization about what else you can do to help the mission and to move the ball forward. Yeah. What one? Do you think I handled that right? How does one handle the fact that in any organization there are some people coasting? That that's why there is a joke about Huli and the roof and people resting, investing. Mm-hmm. And listen, you worked at Google. You know there's people resting, investing. <laughs> at google in a major way it's part of the culture actually so how does one deal with that fact that maybe not everybody is uh running as hard and getting as much Mm -hmm. making as much impact as other people and it becomes quite apparent
1: yeah i mean i think that's that's a really huge question um unpack a few pieces um so so i think so ultimately it comes back to motivation and how and and how are people motivated to, to to act or behave and there's a bunch of theory around that so people I like Daniel Pink's work. So, people are motivated by purpose. Uh, they want to have like a North Star or like a mission that they're aligned with. They want to have mastery. They want to get good at a craft or get better at what they're doing. And they want to have a level of autonomy. So, they don't want to be controlled by other people. And in many organizations, people don't honestly know why their work fits into the big picture. They're not getting better. They, they look at their work day to day and it hasn't changed in two months or two years. And they don't have autonomy because they have these people who are controlling them, and they're dependent on all these other people. So of course they end up being unmotivated, and then they move into these um, these behaviors that look like they're coasting. Um, so I think that's one element. And then the, but to speak specifically to your start of day, end of day, what I like about these habits is that they create um, this ritual. And if you if you if you're if you can create an environment where people are comfortable giving a start of day or an end of day report that isn't perfect or isn't great, then that actually is a really great signal because ah. it means you have psychological safety. And then you actually you have this environment where people are able to act without the fear of negative consequences. And then as a leader, you can then go, hey, what happened today? Do you need some help? Like are you unclear about your priorities? Or like are you sick? Do you need to take some time off? Are you burnt out? Like you can start having conversations about why there was a gap in expectations and reality. And if you don't have that safety, then you can't have that conversation, and then things get more polarized. So people get more anxious, they get more re- reserved, they, they they spend more time trying to look like they're working instead of actually working. Um, so it's this it's this um you know spiral spiral into. See, I really uh, like lack this lack idea of,
0: of people being able to in their report say, "Today sucked. I didn't get." anything done it was all blockers and roadblocks and i was in a funk and i was exhausted because the kids kept me up at night i I actually really never created the space for that in my eod mm -hmm. and i i think uh that's actually a really interesting punch-up is to tell people listen if it was a a crummy day yeah for the love of god you know just say you phoned it it'd be great if somebody's like listen i phoned it in today (laughs) And the boss is yeah, able it, to say, "Like, hey, tomorrow's a new day," because we all know there's days when you're mm-hmm. sitting in front of that computer in the office, and you and you're there for eight hours, but you're not there, and nothing got done.
1: Even the best people have those days. So, if you can create an environment where they can talk about that, that's like the best place to be, because then you can start correcting the conditions that led them to have those days. So, ultimately, this is actually the rain, the core checking behavior in ranges. Um, we only do it once a day but it's what's your plan for the day which is like your eod and then what happened previously which is like your end uh, sorry start of day and then what happened previously which is like your end of day and then we have some culture components that are are designed to build um, belonging and connectedness especially in remote teams
0: all right when we get back from this break i want to talk about building culture remotely if you have a little more time for us when we get back on this week in startups great guest As we navigate uncertain times, Silicon Valley Bank believes that collective action is the best way to overcome the challenges we're all up against. This is why Silicon Valley Bank, in partnership with Founders Pledge, has formed the COVID-19 Global Impact and Innovation Fund. The fund will deliver resources directly to organizations around the world that can help make the most immediate impact in the fight against COVID-19. Silicon Valley Bank has made an initial $1 million investment to fund this critical work and invites you to join them in helping those in need. Silicon Valley Bank continues to offer solutions that support small businesses and the innovation economy. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has supported countless innovators with a passion for solving the world's biggest problems and today remains committed to helping its clients and employees and our communities manage through these uncertain times. To learn more about the Silicon Valley Bank COVID-19, Global Impact, and Innovation Fund, visit svb.com slash impact. Again, that's svb.com slash impact. All right, Daniel Pupias is with us. Follow him on the Twitter, D-P-U-P. Like a pew and being pious. Pupias, easy to remember. D-Pup. D-Pup. The D-Pup. It's also his rap name. Um, Is that your playa name as well, or is it a different playa name? (laughs) When I'm on the playa, you haven't been to the playa.
1: playa. What? But... But you at Google, pup.
0: Medium, obvious. She, wow. she probably
1: hate me saying this, but my wife went a bunch, and then by the time we were together, um, she was all over it. So,
0: I'm really interested in Burning Man 2021. It's either going to be the greatest Burning Man ever, or it's going to be terrible, because having yeah. a thousand or two thousand people dancing tribally around robot hard or whatever it is like it, it just yeah i i hope yeah, we can do that
1: it's interesting to think about cyberpunk um fashion with the pandemic and what does um like post pandemic like rave outfit look like you've got masks you probably got um you know it's just very interesting
0: <laughs> yeah i i think we're part of the same generation uh, in terms of cyberpunk did you pre order the cyber truck for milan well what did you think when you uh, saw it?
1: I don't have space in my garage. We we live in a loft, so
0: <laughs> yeah, but I mean what did you think when you saw that roll out?
1: Yeah, it looked like something out of a computer game.
0: Yeah. I, I, it's just amazing. Uh well, I'd say also interesting. I think um the the Gibson series, Uduru, All Tomorrow's Party mm-hmm. is that I don't you read that one, that whole Yeah, all series? of them. Yeah. It's I've a really read, great series. Read everything by Gibson. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing. And and a lot of these young kids don't know him. He's kind of like this it's it's really really, creepy (laughs) what's that
1: it's creepy he like predicts the future five years ahead of it Um, yeah i feel like pattern recognition is my life
0: it really is interesting because he was talking about people i remember i was kind of my mind was blown they were in a virtual space in that story and they really wanted to buy the perfect kimono to wear to this important meeting with the person who was running this other massively online community and my favorite part of it was the bay bridge had been knocked out on both sides and people were living Mm -hmm. in the Bay Bridge and it was like its own community. Yeah. Every time I drive across (laughs) the Bay Bridge, I think about that visual.
1: Yeah. And I I wish they'd left the bridge up and turned it into a park and then that would have been perfect.
0: When I saw they were building that other new part of the Bay Bridge, I said, why don't they leave Mm -hmm. the other stanchion that was ripped up metal instead of shipping it to China, which I think was what they did, make it into some park and some incredible yep. highline like feature and they just mm-hmm. ripped it apart it was so dumb terrible lack yep. of creativity all right let's talk about building culture over uh when remote best practices mm-hmm. things you built into the tool how do we build that trust how do we how do we make this real when it's virtual
1: yeah i, I think so I'd like to go meta a little bit um The the underlying issue is that many work practices are built on these informal ad hoc interactions. So you don't intentionally build culture. Culture emerges through interactions in the kitchen or in the desk in the cubes or like how you shop at happy hour. So when you go remote, you don't have the opportunity for those informal interactions. So you have to be much more intentional about how you actually cultivate the the different types of interactions within your organization. So if you look at the best companies, um, best remote companies, they're just incredibly intentional about their culture. They essentially design it. And um, this is something I talk to a lot with um, startup founders is design your company like a product, you have all these tools for how you make great products, apply the same principles to how you build your company. So look at the problems you're trying to solve, look at the user needs, and then and then work through that to identify um, the processes and practices that, that work for your company. And it's the same with remote. Um, I think a few things I'd say immediately, because that's probably a bit too abstract, would be to essentially create a cadence. Um, So what your check-ins? So uh, like think about the week as having bookends at the start and the end. So maybe all hands briefing at the beginning of the week and then a, a recap where you do some fun stuff at the end of the week. And then over the course of the week, what are the check- check-in points? So we check in asynchronously daily, and then each team has these collaboration hours um twice a week where they get together and problem solved, do demos, um, just like t- talk, talk as a team. And that creates this nice rhythm to the week and that creates this backbone um, of culture building.
0: Yeah, I, I've always had my entire career, um, for, you know, for two decades and three startups, uh, lunch with Jason on Wednesdays. It's just like called mm-hmm. the CEO lunch, which really doesn't have an agenda. People like to introduce agendas and make it the staff meeting. I just call it lunch. and I mm-hmm. And I've always had this problem where, I would try to order great food from like a very unique place and make the lunch amazing and beautiful. And like, this is the hot new restaurant in San Francisco. Somebody drove over there in an Uber. They don't deliver. We got the food. We brought it here. We told everybody what the lunch was. It's from this new barbecue joint. And just try to make it a little bit more special. Um, Mm -hmm. And I got like resistance on that. I'm curious how you deal with people who are I don't want to say culture killers, but culture resistant. So you're trying to build a culture. We were talking about EODs. I had somebody who was, I wouldn't say the highest performer, but a, a solid contributor. And when I asked him to do EODs, he just kind of like blew a gasket. He's no longer here, obviously, but was just like totally <laughs> felt yeah. like I didn't trust him. And I was like, it's not about trust. It's about knowing what's getting done so that I can be informed as the person who's responsible for $30 million of capital being deployed and you being one of the top three lieutenants. Like I I, I have a a, a duty here. This is beyond your ego or my, you know, being a a taskmaster. This has to do with our fiduciary responsibility to investors.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think this is one of the hardest things in management is it's essentially diagnosing the, like the behavior and the, and the root cause. And um, in this case, Maybe he was fearful, like he was insecure about his work, and he thought he was being monitored. Um, so there are things that potentially were systemic that affected it. Um, but there can also be again like values misalignment. And I think one way to think about teams is: are you a golf team or a basketball team? So golf teams like the, they they go out and they do, they play their game, and then they add the scarf at the end. Some people love working that way. Other people want to be a basketball team where you do the play together and you're passing the ball around and it's very dynamic. Yes. And if there's if there's a mismatch between those two, it's it's just going to be like a non-starter because you can't have a you can't have a so a solo player on a basketball team. Like you have to play as a team. Mm, um, I love that metaphor.
0: Can you have those two types of teams in one company?
1: Within a company, yeah, and I think that's actually one of the super interesting things that I've learned over the last year working with our customers is that the variance between companies is often often lower than the variance within a company. So two teams at Twitter might look way different, more different than a, tw- a team at Twitter and like a 30 person startup that we're working with. Um, so it's really, it's really, really quite interesting.
0: What What is psychological safety mean? I know there was a, people hear this term a lot. I, w- I wanna really get your definition yeah. of it because I know they did a survey at Google mm-hmm. on teams and that was yeah. th- the number one. And, and we had um, um, Kim Scott, formerly Kim, mm-hmm. uh, I forgot her last name. Yeah, Kim's re- great. Yeah, and, and she was my AdSense rep back in the day. I, I, re- I knew her by her previous last name, which I'm just drawing a blank on here, uh, but she did the book Rattle Kakandra, but psychological safety came up over and over and over again in that study when they looked at people in these yeah. groups. And let's face it, you know, Google's got very unique kind of individuals, I would say.
1: Yeah. Hon- honestly, this is kind of one of my pet peeves because the concept of psychological safety is around for decades and it wasn't um, really acknowledged until Google did their project Aristotle as being something that was worth paying attention to. And now everyone talks about psychological safety. But essentially, if you look at great teams and, and great performers, the people act in um, in ways without fear. So they don't fear negative consequences to themselves um, through failure or speaking up. So if I'm in a staff meeting and my boss proposes a project, and I think that project's got a really Big problem with it. If I don't have psychological safety, I won't speak up and and warn them because I'm worried about reprisals on me in that meeting. If I have psychological safety, I will speak up and say, hey, you haven't thought about this other issue. And then you get the most out of the team. So psychological safety essentially means you feel accepted and respected by your peers and that you can act without fear.
0: And you see this in professional sports when a teammate, when teammates get in a fight and it cracks. Um, there was a famous photo of LeBron James um, when he had J.R. Smith on his team. And J.R. Smith is a, a head case uh, on a good day. I don't know if you follow, you follow basketball?
1: I don't follow basketball, no.
0: Okay, so just imagine having somebody who is like, yeah, um, would like <laughs> literally light a cigar up in the locker room like in 2020. Or he, he, Literally, J.R. Smith was known for when they were, when he was on the Knicks, people were shooting free throws. And while during the game, he would lean over and untie another player's shoes. And he did it like three or four times, like completely inappropriate, like Dennis Rahman, like behavior. And there's this famous photo of, like he he didn't take a timeout or he he called a timeout when they didn't have one. And LeBron James is like crying with his hands and his palms up like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. And it became this iconic image. Uh, and now people use it. It's become memed because it's when your teammate does something so incredibly stupid that you're so incredibly disappointed. They don't play together anymore. Um, uh, and there's the images. LeBron James is so upset, and it's like, but it's more disappointment than anger. Um, and uh, then you had uh, obviously the Kevin Durant uh, and uh, there we go. Draymond Green, also kind of like breaking down. H- mm-hmm. How does a team hold each other accountable? You know, in intense situations yeah. where a lot is at stake and emotions yeah. are high, where how does one? keep the expectation high you know uh, address the fact that yes emotions can run high when high things are at stake like an nbm championship or a startup's yeah. e- very existence or a major yeah. investment unpack that for me of how to be intense yeah. and have high expectation culture and psychological safety at the same yeah. time
1: yeah i mean i think i would argue that you you don't have accountability without psychological safety um so let's take the example where um, someone's got this bad idea in a meeting and I don't feel able to st- to speak up about it. Do you think I am now committed to that project? I am now not committed to that project. Cause I'm like, I know it's going to fail because I've had this belief that I just, but I'm just not able to speak up about it. Mm. Then as the bro- project goes on, I will not be, I will always have that in the back of my mind that that's not going to be successful. And then when it doesn't succeed, like I don't have any ownership in the lack of success because um, I, like, I never thought about that in the first place. So, I think what's great about psychological safety is it allows you to have that conflict and it allows you to speak up and disagree with each other. It doesn't mean having lack of emotions. It doesn't mean not arguing or making, you know, I think maybe LeBron James had a huge amount of psychological safety because he was able to yell at his teammate and know that they'd be able to get back together and yeah. play, play the rest of the game. So I think if you want a highly successful team, you want to get the most out of everyone. And in order to get the most out of everyone, you need to make sure that they feel able to speak up and represent themselves.
0: What's the difference? if a difference at all, in this culture building when you have introverts and extroverts who have very different concepts and constructs around culture? What is culture to Mm -hmm. an introvert that I don't understand as an extrovert who says culture should be us all having dinner or us playing tennis or us going on a hike or us doing like some crazy activity together? And introverts, Mm -hmm. that's not what they want to do necessarily.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... I think introverts don 't they don 't want a lack of emotional and social connection it 's just it 's more difficult for them and they they still seek connection it 's just in different ways and um, extroverts can feel overwhelming to them so I think this goes to aspects of inclusion and it 's um, creating environments where everyone can be involved so can you create a team building effort that works really great for the extroverts that want to jump up on stage and do karaoke, as well as the introverts who might just want to play a board game or a game of poker and having like a mix and match of activities that can speak to different energy levels. And the reality is that most people are on a spectrum um, between introvert and extrovert and they they oscillate up and down that spectrum and d- at different times. So people can be more extroverted or less extroverted on a given day. So it's just being thoughtful about that and creating environments which accommodate different people.
0: Yeah, you worked with Evan Williams, a good friend of mine, and I, I think sometimes Evan doesn't know how to like actually handle being in the same room with me. I think he's entertained, but he's a yeah. he's a super thoughtful introverted guy. You've but seen. He also throws amazing videos, parties, but he has incredibly great parties.
1: Right, and he does. He sings songs in front of the whole company. So yes, he, he operates in that spectrum.
0: What do you think is a holacracy thing that he tried, and uh, my friend Tony Shea tried? Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're part of that holocracy camp.
1: I was, yeah. You were. <laughs> from, were day, you, from day 1, yeah.
0: Did you insert holocracy? Are you the cause of it and what do you think is the legacy of that? It seemed very promising and then I don't hear about it anymore. Yeah. Tell everybody what yeah, it so is and what the what the arc has been for holocracy. Holocracy.
1: So, um so I've brought it into Medium um, and he'd talked with Tony Shea and a few other people and thought it sounded like an interesting model. Um, and uh, the way to think about Holocaust is essentially, it's essentially a rule set. They call themselves an operating system, but it's a rule set for how to run the company and it's oriented around notion of self-governance. So in the ideal world, um, a team is completely autonomous and can describe their own work and describe how they work and um, has processes for evolving that. Um which might sound not that extreme, but it has a very rigorous rule set that, um, kind of keeps the, it from becoming chaotic. Um, so there's t- teams of circles and then circles can have circles inside, and then you have roles. So it detaches a uh, title from role, which is kind of interesting and has explicit a- accountabilities. Um, and then it has these processes for how you modify the constitution as it were, or how you resolve what they call tensions or like issues. Um, which is based on other practices like sociocracy, which has like integrative decision making, which is another formal process for resolving um, resolving hard decisions in a in a um, in a group. Um, has so it worked it anywhere?
0: Because f- holacracy was a new concept, and I know Tony kind of I don't know if he deprecated yeah. it or he he kind of uh, took the gas off of it. And I did not know, Evan yeah. took the gas off of it. People wanted more structure is what I heard from both of them is that people didn't want to be responsible in large part of defining their role. They wanted their role defined for them, but they wanted autonomy in it. Was that the was that the tension in that? The
1: the irony the irony about Holox is it ended up being pretty black and white. And it's like, yeah, this is the way that you do things. And if you don't like doing these things, then Holoxy doesn't work for you. And (laughs) what we realized was that you needed you can't have the system that you designed your company has to adapt and it has to be situational for the team, for the people, and um, both on what they want for, in their role, but also in their ability. So there's this notion of situational leadership where you you flex up and down your level of control based on the ability for the team. Heloxy didn't have that. So it was just very, it felt very chaotic. And then as we were scaling the company, you know, we were doubling every year. It just took a lot of time to onboard people and teach them how to do things. So the the rule set got in the way of itself and mm. it, it was empowering but it was also slow and you can't you may have been able to resolve all the problems with it but we just didn't have the time or the luxury to do it through the through the formal processes um, but at one point um so Jen, my co-founder and i were the people that we moved this off holacracy to, to a, a new a new model um which we grew internally but as we were doing that we kind of joked that half the problem was the name Holacracy and then the dogma surrounded it. Like, pe- It had this weird life of its own and this belief of like what it meant. And I, the, the best word is dogma. And then that meant that that got in the way of the company. So it's not like, how do we solve this problem? It's like, how do we do this thing in Holacracy? And then we spend all the time talking about Holacracy instead of the thing you were trying to solve. So it got it got in the way of itself. That is
0: so meta. It literally became like a religion. So everything you looked at, you were looking through it yeah. through the lens of this Bible or these commandments or this dogma and that's not how problems are solved. And I really like what you said there is like things are situational. There might be a team member who is so transcendent at doing something that everybody else gets out of the way and lets them do it in Mm -hmm. a certain situation. Then there might be other situations which are confounding and new and you want to bring in twice as many people and have 10 times as many ideas, right? Like Mm -hmm. sometimes you're sending in a sniper team and they're going to take out the target or osama bin Laden, you're sending in like a you know the, the seals other times mm-hmm. you might need to be like this is diplomacy time or maybe we're going to take yep. a, a, a an economic approach to solving this problem with the mm-hmm. taliban I, i'm sorry i'm just watching yep. uh, the new, uh, season of homeland <laughs> yeah. but you know there's, there's different approaches
1: right and it flexes even with an individual so um you have a high performer who is generally you delegate like problems to them and, you, and they just run with it. Um, maybe they're going through a stressful period or they're returning from like, paternity leave or something like that. And then you, you, you give them much smaller tasks during that period while they're ramping back up. Mm. So that, that's the power of good leadership is that you come up with um, the right method of management or right method of leadership in the moment for the right situation, the right person. Yeah, see, and you was just it. very dogmatic.
0: Yeah. That's the art of it. It's like, you might have a high performer, but they're coming back from an injury. And you say, I, mm-hmm. I know that you're a starter. I know you're Kevin Durant. We want you to come off the bench. We want you to play 20 minutes. We want to see what's going on with that Achilles heel. Uh, we, we just want you to take you know five or 10 shots. Let, let, you don't need to like dunk the ball. Let, let's just get you into some spot-up three-point shooting, get you warmed right. up, and, and let, then we'll you know slowly increase you back to whatever mm-hmm. speed. But the problem is sometimes people are like, they just rush people back, and they just get re-injured, or, or they're not ready for it, right? And yeah,
1: exactly, yeah. That,
0: that's the yes. job of a great manager. Who's the best manager? uh alive today in business. Anybody you look to or any historical person you look to based on their bio, obviously you didn't work for everybody, but just from an outward perspective, you look at and say, you know, that's a gold standard right there. That's that's yeah. somebody who does a really great job.
1: Yeah, I, I I don't know off the top of my head. I think it's such a difficult question because um the external perspective of people can be so different to the perspective of the people who, you know, report f- to them or work for them. Um so I, I hazard to name a person, unfortunately, uh, yeah. which is maybe a cop out. But I think, I think often I've been surprised many times where there's been someone who I thought must be like the best person to work for. And then I've heard stories about actually how it's really terrible and vice versa, where someone who on the surface seems, um, you know, relatively uninspirational and um, potentially, you know, not, not very motivating is like the, one of the best people that they've ever worked for.
0: It really is fascinating, isn't it? Like, and I think it also has to do with the stage of life. If you look at somebody like Steve Jobs or, or Bill Gates, you know there were these stories of them being terrors in the beginning mm-hmm. of their lives, and then there are these yep. stories of them being exceptional later in their lives. On uh, to, to be human to the point of, you know, just saint-like. You know, there's a great moment in the Bob Iger book where um, Bob Iger's uh, book where he's uh, buying Pixar for Disney and mm-hmm. Steve Jobs takes him on the side and says, listen, I got to tell you, I know we're about to announce, yep. but you can back out if you want. I'm my cancer's back. And I know I'm a big part of this. I'm going to be a bigger shareholder. And I understand if you don't want to buy this, knowing that I may not be here in six months and you're like, oh my God. And like, <laughs> did you read yep. it yet? Bob Iger's book.
1: I haven't read it. No. It's but, a great um, listen,
0: and great book. I mean, he, he really has to go through this like incredible moment of like, oh my God, mm. Steve Jobs yeah, but, is not going to be here, and I'm going to buy this company. I might have bought this knowing Steve Jobs is going to die, and then I can't tell the world he's going to die quickly, mm-hmm. in all mm-hmm. likelihood. And that's material information, or is it not material? And and then how do, how do I process that, even? It's a really amazing mm-hmm. human moment.
1: Yeah. One thing that you said, though, um, there, there are these theories of adult cognitive development, and that as you... Um, it's, it's t- mostly tied to age, but it's not perfectly tied to age, it's tied to experience. Um, but the way that your mind makes meaning of the world evolves um, mm. throughout your life. It used to be thought of being fixed. So as you, as you hit these different levels of cognition, you start thinking more from the systems point of view versus the group or for more for egocentric. So you can, you can chart people's biographies through that, that, that journey. Um, and that, that's um, a lens to view, say like jobs journey on.
0: I yeah I I've, it's interesting that it's chronological. I also think there's milestones that affect people. So mm-hmm. I watch when people make, you know, a large amount of money and that or have a large amount of demonstrable success and they don't feel like their failure is yep. imminent, which mm-hmm. you know, like uh, there were moments where it looked like Twitter was going to fail, like they couldn't mm-hmm. even keep the servers up. And so for somebody to just take of a mutual friend of ours, like i, I don't I, I don't work for did never work with Ev, but I get the fe- i get the sense that the level of safety and freedom he has having had the great success of Twitter and then previously you know the moderate yeah. success of blogger gave him a freedom with medium that he can really you know take his time and and he's not under mm-hmm. some existential threat to 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 be you know uh yeah. like maybe somebody like you know who's under the pressure right now like the airbnb founders might be right now at this very yeah, moment
1: Yeah, totally yeah, it relates to I think Maslow again, like 60s um, old research, but again it has relevance today. And his pyramid isn't as meant to be as dogmatic as we currently believe it to be. It's much more uh, like a fluid um, st- set of stages that you progress through and uh, and can go up and down dynamically. But yeah, totally. If you if you have all your material needs taken care of, that, that frees you up um, uh, to take more risks. And then you also have like emotional needs and you know other other needs. But if you can start checking those things off, then yeah, it frees you up to to do things that otherwise would hold you back.
0: Amazing. This has been a great hour uh, with Daniel Pupias. Hey, Daniel, I don't, I don't know if my producer asked you, but um, I would love it if you would do in the um in the founder Slack, com Slack and AMA, maybe if you could carve out 45 minutes yeah, and talk to. about range. Uh, so there you have it, folks. We've got our third AMA coming soon. If you're listening to this, join the Slack group, com slash Slack. It's free. All we ask is that you be... A good human, consider it a dinner party. Uh, like you got invited to a kick-ass dinner party and you want to get invited back. Just have conversations. Don't go to there to market. Don't go to there to spam. Don't go to there to fill the top of your funnel like the people dropping ebooks and cigarette sensation products. Go in there and just have a normal conversation about what you're going through. Be a human and uh, superhuman. Daniel will be there as well uh, doing an AMA. Everybody go check out range.co. Um, and are you hiring now or are you uh, just building?
1: Yeah, we're looking for um, a couple of engineers, um, but mostly, mostly just keeping it lean.
0: Will you consider a remote engineer at this point, or do they have to mm-hmm. be in your den?
1: No, we, we're um we've always decided design the company as being remote friendly. Uh, we have people who like working in the same office, so we did we had we did have an office, we shut it down. Um, but yeah, we're definitely remote. Until well, we think I think there's going to be shelter in place on and off for quite a while, so we were saving saving the expense, and we'll reestablish an HQ if and when uh, well let's assume it is offices. coming back
0: i'm curious how you think about it as the founder ceo do you want to have an office again or i, I
1: think we have we have people on the team who like they, they just like working in an office they Me like too. having that space and then yeah. they like the interactions i think it doesn't become a requirement for work like even previously um on any given day only half the team would be in the office people would work from coffee shops or remotely um so it's more of a a meeting place a formal meeting place than a like an office so we will have one eventually um i just don't know if that's three months six months or like 18 months
0: i'm thinking of a new thing i'm thinking of having a hybrid for the rest of the year because we're going to be coming back where we do um tuesday wednesday thursday really intense in the office and then monday friday you work from home and it can be less intense but we do this like really intense group work um over three days what do
1: you think of that yeah i think i I think there's some really interesting hybrid solutions in the future. I imagine an office where you have maybe some desks for people who want to work in the office the whole time. Then you have some temporary areas where you have kind of like these transient people who come through the office. And then you have remote friendly collaboration areas. So I think the future of work is actually really interesting and it's kind of accelerated over the last few months. Mm. Um, And I'm pretty excited about where we end off.
0: Me too. All right. With that, uh, I'll thank you for coming on the pod and I'll see you in the AMA Um, and uh, to everybody out there uh, dealing with this pandemic. um, Nobody has the answers. Nobody has all the answers, right? We're learning. We're getting through it uh, together. Uh, Be kind to each other, make a little bit of space for debate. um, Especially when we try to figure out going back, should we do it? Should we not? Everybody is under stress. The people who are, you know, delivering packages all the way up to the CEOs, the investors, politicians, Man, this is trying for everybody to try to sort this out. It's psychologically brutal for everybody. Just make a little space. Just make a little space and check in on the people you love because people might be putting up a good front, but I can tell you people are hurting even if they're you know, powerful people or they seem otherwise successful. Th- this is having a psychological impact on everybody. So just a little bit of space for everybody, a little bit of kindness, uh, I think, and a little bit of self-care. Okay, everybody take care of yourselves. We'll see you next time on This Week in Startups.